This morning, we're going to be taking a look at the book of Romans, and, and we're going to be looking at the final section of the book of Romans. We've been looking at this book for quite a few months now, and now we're at the, the, the final spot of the book. So if you would take your Bibles and turn with me to Romans chapter 16, and we're going to start with verse 17 of Romans chapter 16. So Romans 16, starting with verse 17. And today we're talking about this idea of not giving in to any attempt to tear down what Christ is building. So Romans chapter 16, starting with verse 17. This is what it says, starting with the first verse here, verse 17. It says, I appeal to you, brothers, to watch out for those who cause divisions and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine that you have been taught. Avoid them, for such persons do not serve our Lord Christ, but their own appetites. And by smooth talk and flattery, they deceive the hearts of the naive. For your obedience is known to all, so that I rejoice over you. But I want you to be wise as to what is good and innocent as to what is evil. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under, under your feet. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Timothy, my fellow worker, greets you, as do Lucius and Jason and Sosipater, my kinsman. I, Tertius, who wrote this letter, greet you in the Lord. Gaius, who is host to me and to the whole church, greets you. Erastus, the city treasurer, and our brother Quartus greet you. Now to him who is able to strengthen you according to my gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery that was kept secret for long ages, but has now been disclosed and through the prophetic writings has been made known to all nations, according to the command of the eternal God to bring about the obedience of faith to the only wise God be glory forevermore through Jesus Christ. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, we're grateful for the privilege to be able to look at your word together this morning. Thank you for giving us access to it. Thank you, Lord, for giving us the ability to comprehend it and understand it. Thank you as well for the privilege to be able to apply these truths to our day-to-day -day lives. And we pray, Lord, that you'd speak to us now as we look at this portion of your word. We pray that, as in a sense, we, we try and summarize many of the things that that we've been looking at as we've been studying the book of Romans together. We pray that you'd help these things to become clear in our hearts and clear in our minds and evident in our lives. And we commit this time to you now, Lord. We're grateful for the privilege to be able to look at this portion of your word together. And we pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. So earlier this week, I was watching the news, and I was watching a news story about a vacant building in the city of Pittston, Pennsylvania. Does anyone know where Pittston, Pennsylvania is? Is anyone familiar with that? Maybe a couple people. It's up near Scranton. It's not too far from Scranton. And apparently the building had been empty for quite a while, and it was creating pretty much a, a significant safety concern for the community because the building had fallen into disrepair. So people were concerned that if they walked by it, that pieces of it might fall off. They were concerned that it might collapse in certain areas. And so it was certainly a, a, a subject of local conversation. And I guess after multiple attempts to try and resolve the issue with the property owner, uh, the city government finally resorted to tearing the structure down. So they decided they were just going to tear the whole thing down. And so they brought heavy machinery in, and they ripped the building apart. 
They tore it down. And at present, so today, there's still some rubble there, I believe, but that's all that's, that's visible from the building. Just, just a vacant lot with rubble where several days ago a building stood. Now, because the building was in such disrepair, many of the local residents were thrilled to see that thing demolished. They were very, very grateful. They were tired of looking at it. They were, they were tired of being fearful to walk by it or drive by it. I imagine that if I lived in the community of Pittston, that I'd probably feel the exact same way. But as I was, but as I was watching the building being torn down, as I'm seeing that video, I felt sympathy for the residents, but I also felt bad for the guys that built it. Now, I'm assuming based on the age of the structure that the guys that built it uh, have, are, are long since gone. You know, it's not a new building. It's a building that's been around for, for quite a while. But I couldn't help but think of all the effort and all the man hours that must have gone into building that building. Because it wasn't like a tiny little building. It was a, a downtown building. It was a business that had, I believe it had, you know, like residences above it. It was a significant enough building that I thought, all right, a lot of effort went into this thing. And a lot of time went into this thing. And a lot of man hours went into this thing. But now because of a long season of neglect and because of the the property owner's conflict with the local government, all that work had been reduced to a pile of debris. That's all that's left of it. Now, I bring that up because when we look at the Scripture we're looking at today, and when we look at the work of Christ that He's accomplishing, Jesus has made it clear to us that at present, so right now, He's building His church. And the devil will not succeed in destroying what Christ is building. So Christ is building us up as individuals. Christ is building us up as a family. Christ is building His church as a kingdom. And even though Christ is ultimately going to be victorious in all of these efforts, there are still those who try to tear down what Christ is building. And Christ warned us ahead of time about these attempts. He even uses the Apostle Paul in this portion of Scripture that we're looking at today to warn us about these attempts. But we're warned about these things so that we could be on guard against them. So that we could be on guard against any attempt to tear down what Christ is building. So what is this Scripture that we just read together? What does it teach us about what it looks like to be on our guard against these things. What, what are we supposed to be watching out for? Or how can, be, how can we be on our guard against attempts to tear down what Christ is building? Well, one of the things that this Scripture brings out to us is this. That we need to watch out for those who create division. We need to watch out for those who create division. Let me reread the first two verses of the section that we're in today. Verse 17 and verse 18. There you have the Apostle Paul saying this. He says, I appeal to you, brothers, to watch out for those who cause divisions and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine that you have been taught. Avoid them. For such persons do not serve our Lord Christ, but their own appetites. And by smooth talk and flattery, they deceive the hearts of of the naive. Now let me pause there for just a moment. You ever encountered a divisive person? You ever encountered somebody that, that just kind of has that personality type that they're that they're divisive and they create division? Now, if you've encountered somebody like that, what have you observed about their behaviors? What do they tend to do? What tends to be the pattern that gets exhibited by somebody that's divisive? You know, how do they speak? 
What do they say about others when they aren't around? Isn't that typically a tactic of somebody that's divisive? You know, they, they have a, a way of, of kind of painting people with a very negative brush when people aren't there to reply or defend themselves. How do they speak about those who serve in roles of leadership? These are things that kind of come up when you're talking about division. And you have Paul wrapping up this letter to the church at Rome. And he's gone to great detail over the course of these 16 chapters to speak about all sorts of subjects. And he wanted to leave this church at this point now with some words of caution regarding those who would attempt to tear down the work of Christ by causing division within the church. He wanted to warn them about this. And so Paul actually, when you look at what he says here, he actually encourages the church to avoid people like that. Now we're going to revisit that concept in just a moment, but he says to avoid people like that. And as I read those statements, his words actually remind me of conversations that my wife and I had from time to time with our children, particularly when they were little, where we would caution them sometimes to avoid certain people that either had the propensity to cause trouble or people who might have the capacity to lead them in a bad direction. And you see Paul speaking that way here to the church at Rome. Now, picture Paul's concerns. You know, the type of things that would be on his heart and on his mind. Paul, who spent a lot of time going city to city, place to place, risking his life to, to proclaim the gospel and make the gospel known town to town, discipling people, training people. He's fully invested in the work of, of, of helping people come to know Christ. He's fully invested in the work of helping the church to grow strong. That's what Paul has devoted his life to doing. So if you were the Apostle Paul... What would be the type of things that you would imagine that you would pray about when you were praying for these churches? Wouldn't you pray for their long-term health and their long-term safety and that the Lord would protect them from the schemes of the evil one? Paul was obviously concerned for the long-term health of the church at Rome. Now, he didn't plant that church, but that didn't make him less concerned for their well-being. He was genuinely concerned for their well-being. And when you look at his words in this portion of Scripture that we're looking at today, as he's closing out this book, a book that's got a lot of details, one of his longer books, right? His words in this letter, they remind me of the advice of a good coach. At times, he encourages them to play good offense. And now he was encouraging the church to beef up their defense. So think about the culture at the time that Paul was writing these words into. In the culture at that time, you had a lot of things that were going on. It's very interesting how quickly word could travel and how, how travel had certainly improved, even just being able to physically get to places. It was certainly a, a, an era of time that had its innovation. It was an era of time where communication was, was improving in certain respects because of the way that the Roman Empire was structured. And also during that time, you have many people who aspire to be teachers and who aspire to be influencers in the midst of that culture, very much like what we have in our culture right now, people who aspire to be teachers, people who aspire to be influencers. And so you have the apostles, first of all, who and other Christians who feel compelled to do mission work and to spread the gospel city to city. So they're doing that, they're traveling, they're spreading word, they're making the gospel known, they're helping people come to faith in Christ and to grow in their faith in Christ. But at the same time, you also have false teachers and false apostles who spring up with the goal of fleecing people. 
That was their goal, to fleece people. And so Paul describes them as people who were primarily motivated by satisfying their own sinful appetites. These false teachers that were going around and spreading falsehood and creating division. He says these are people that their, their primary motivation is to just satisfy their own sinful appetites. And so he tells us what they would do. He kind of gives the game plan of how these people would operate. He says they would use smooth talk. And they would use flattery. And they would distort the gospel to try and gain a personal following. So this is what they would do, is they would go place to place, and then their ultimate goal was, as they did that, they wanted to fleece people of their money. They wanted to effectively talk people out of their money with falsehood and smooth talk and flattery to try and gain an audience for themselves so that they could ultimately satisfy their own selfish desires. And by the way, even though this is almost a couple thousand years ago that Paul's referencing these things... Does that not sound very much like what we see right now in our day as well? Isn't it interesting how human nature is human nature and how people do the same things, regardless of whether you're talking about something happening 2,000 years ago in the Roman culture or here we are in present day in our culture? People are still doing this same sort of thing. There are all sorts of hosts of, of false teachers, some of which who have national platforms, who actually distort the gospel, and they do so with the attempt to maybe acquire cash or notoriety as they basically bilk those who trust them. And even on a more local level, think about this from a local level too, not just a national level. On a more local level, churches are also hurt by people who, who draw people unto themselves by trying to undermine local church leaders causing division, doing things like that. I have to say, uh, over the course of my years of ministry, I've personally witnessed that multiple times, and on several occasions I've directly experienced it. So it's not something that was unique to the culture that Paul was in. It's the type of thing that happens in our culture as well. So these are really timeless words for this era. Because we could look at this and say, all right, this isn't advice just for the Romans. This is advice for us as well, to watch out for those who create division. So again, what was Paul's counsel to the church at Rome? And what counsel would he give us in our context when you know dealing with either divisive or deceitful people who actively try and tear down what Christ has been building up? Well, Paul's counsel was very clear. It was very decisive. And I imagine even as we look at it, it might even sound a little bit harsh. But here he says, under the direction of the Holy Spirit, under the, the wisdom of the Holy Spirit, Paul advises us to avoid such people. And when he's saying avoid them, he, he's including in that thought this idea of don't give them a foothold in your life, and certainly don't give them a foothold in your local church. Play some spiritual defense. So the idea is have your ears open, have your eyes open, play some spiritual defense, watch out for those who would foster division. It's not an issue just for the first century Christians or the second century Christians. It's something for us as well. And so you have Paul concluding this letter with some words of caution so that the work that Christ had been building up wouldn't be torn down by those who had poor motives. Watch out for those who create division. But then he goes on to give a little bit more um, kind of internal advice. And the advice that he gives us after that is this idea of don't allow wickedness to worm its way into your life. 
Now think about that statement even before I reread verses 19 and 20. Don't allow wickedness to worm its way into your life. What do you think is, is meant by a statement like that? And what does it look like when something kind of worms its way into your life? Uh, last year around this time, I was trimming. I have a bunch of juniper that grows behind my house. And I always wonder what lives under there when, uh, when I'm up there trimming it because I can't see underneath it. And I've seen all sorts of creatures up on that hill where I planted juniper. In fact, just the other week, if we're connected on, on Facebook, you probably saw pictures of a fox that was hanging out in my backyard. And he was back there eating squirrels and stuff I soon discovered. So that's really pleasant, right? That's the type of thing you want to encounter. But you know what else I've encountered when I've been working on that hill and, and working with that juniper? Snakes. So that's what I always think about when I'm walking on it or pulling weeds or trimming it. I think, I wonder what's under here. <laughs> they're, like, cause I know that they're there. Now, I've never seen any snakes that were terribly freaky. You know, I didn't see, like, in Levittown how they have cobras apparently now. Did you see that news story the other day? Check it out. Yeah, they found a, a cobra at an apartment complex in Levittown the other day. Really exciting and really special. Never found a cobra back there. But last year around this time, I was working, uh, back in, in, in that juniper and out came a snake. Now, I had gloves on, and I thought, all right, even if that thing bites me, it's probably not going to get through the gloves. So I grabbed it. You know, no big deal, right? And you know what the snake did? It bit me. <laughs> but I didn't react because I had the gloves on, and all I did was I took my phone out and took a picture of it. And I've got a, a snake biting my hand. It wasn't that big. And, and uh, I thought, you know, it's interesting how that thing can just kind of work its way through the hill, do whatever it wants. You know, it's not a worm, but it kind of functions the same way. It just moves around. It worms its way through or snakes its way through. Maybe we could even say don't allow wickedness to snake its way into our lives because that's kind of how wickedness works. It kind of sneaks around. And you don't, it doesn't really like to always be super obvious, right? It likes to just kind of sneak around and then all of a sudden you're like, oh, there it is. And then you're like, oh, I should pick it up. And then it bites you, right? And here you have the Apostle Paul saying what? Look at what he says in verse 19. He says, for your obedience is known to all. So he's saying this to the church at Rome. He says, for your obedience is known to all so that I rejoice over you, but I want you to be wise as to what is good and innocent as to what is evil. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Let me ask a question. Two questions. First off, personally. And just answer this in your head. But if someone said to you, if they were just meeting you, and they said, what are you known for? What are you known for? How would you answer that question? What are you known for? And then a second related question that I think was, is worth asking in light of this Scripture is this. What is our church known for? What's our church known for? So if you talk to somebody in the community, talk to one of the neighbors here, if you talk to someone you know in the community, and you ask them, what, you know, tell, tell us a little, about, a little bit about Core Creek Community Church. What's our church known for? I was thinking about that because here you have the Apostle Paul paying a compliment to the church at Rome. And he states that their obedience was known to all. 
It's a very high compliment coming from an apostle, wouldn't you say? That their obedience was known to all. Genuine faith in Christ results in obedience to Christ's teaching that's prompted by genuine love for Christ. And here you have the Apostle Paul speaking to the Roman Christians who are at that point living in the midst of a culture where their government was openly hostile to them. And some believers in their context were being crucified. If you look at some of the ways that the other Christians were treated, some of them were actually being burned alive, so they'd be covered in pitch and they'd be burned alive. Some at that time were fed to wild animals. We know that at the behest of the Roman government, eventually Peter was crucified. We also know that later on, the Apostle Paul, at the behest of the Roman government, was beheaded. So living in obedience to Christ during that context, or in that context during that era, that was not a small matter, right? So if you're being complimented for for your obedience to Jesus Christ, prompted by your genuine faith in Christ, prompted by your genuine love for Christ, if you're being complimented for your obedience, that is not a small issue. So Paul's complimenting them. It's not without reason, right? This is a big deal. He's saying your obedience is known to all. But in this context, where playing both offense and defense mattered, you have Paul also stressing both of those things in these verses. So offensively, Again, he's kind of speaking maybe a little bit like a parent, but also like a coach. He encourages them to be people who grow in wisdom, who exhibit wisdom. They were, they were to put that which was good before their eyes. They were to apply the teaching of the gospel to their lives. They were to live out the counsel of Scripture. Offensively, that's what they were called to do. Defensively, he tells them here, to be innocent as to what? is evil. Now, we know that in their culture, they were certainly surrounded by all sorts of vice, all sorts of forms of temptation, much like we are in our culture. Um, They would likewise be presented with plenty of opportunities to deny Christ and to just be absorbed into the greater culture and and experience no more persecution as they just, all they had to do was just deny Christ and, and go along with the cultural mindset. But obviously, that's not the will of God for his family. In very, you know, in many respects, he calls us what? To be countercultural in our mindset and in our attitude and in our lives. So the culture may go in one direction, but we're not to just blindly follow in the direction that the culture goes. We're to glorify Christ in all areas of our lives as a, as a, as the fruit of genuine faith in Christ. And the will of God is to allow us. So think about this in a very personal way because Paul addresses this here. The will of God is to allow us to share in the victory over sin that Christ secured on our behalf. It's the will of God to share that victory with us. Satan is a defeated foe. He does not need to have sway over your thinking. He doesn't need to have dominion over your life. He doesn't need to have control over you because as you trust in Jesus Christ, the victory Christ secured on your behalf becomes your victory as well. And He lives within you. And He empowers you. And He guides you because you belong to Him. In fact, we're told here that the grace of Christ is with us. And that God is going to crush Satan under our feet. Does that comment sound familiar? 
this comment here that God is going to crush Satan under your feet. Right? In verse 20, he says, the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. Does that sound like a familiar statement? You remember what was said in the book of Genesis, chapter 3, verse 15? Statement that was given to Adam and Eve, or given, you know, right after Adam and Eve had rebelled against God and invited wickedness into their lives, the Lord says something. Look at what he says in Genesis 3.15. He says, and I will put enmity, so he's now here he's speaking to Satan, he says, and I will put enmity between you and the woman, and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head, and you will strike his heel. A prophetic reference to the work of Christ. Yeah, Christ was going to be stricken. Christ even came to this earth and he suffered death. So when you think about being stricken, particularly by a venomous snake, what happens if you're, if you're stricken by a venomous snake? Most, most likely you're going to die, right? So here you have God saying, all right, you're going to strike his heel. Okay, so, so the Messiah who is to come, the seed of the woman who is to come, is going to be stricken. But what's he going to do? He's going to crush your head. He's going to crush your head. And here in, in, in Romans 16, you have the Apostle Paul alluding to that when he makes this statement. And he's talking about the fact that the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. He's going to bring to conclusion the things that have been referenced and prophesied for thousands of years. I don't know how that lady in Levittown killed that snake. My understanding is that she took a shovel or something like that. She's 73 years old. I don't remember her last name. Her first name was Kathy, right? She's like a local hero, isn't she? Please tell me you saw that story. If you didn't see the news story, you got to check it out. She opens up her screen door, her back door to go out. She has a ground-level apartment. By the way, in March, about 20 venomous snakes were, were confiscated from that apartment complex. And I'm assuming that this is one that got out. And she opens up her door, and she looks out, and she sees this snake on her back porch. And her comment was, I look out, I see a snake, I said a bad word. She confessed that to the media. Isn't that nice that Kathy confessed that to me? She's like, I said a bad word. I think, I, I, would any of us blame, blame her? You know, She's like, I'm looking, I see, yeah, that's a cobra. And in her thinking, 73 years old, she doesn't want to just, obviously she wants to call for help, but in the meantime she's thinking, what if, what if this thing gets away? There's children that live in this apartment complex. What if this thing gets away? What if it strikes somebody? So she took something, a shovel or something, and she just killed it. How many of us are brave enough to kill a cobra on our back porch with a shovel? (laughs) She did it. We have a local hero, all right? Kathy. But I thought that was pretty cool when I read that. I was like, all right, Kathy, you got my respect. I thought that was pretty neat. And then you look at what the Scripture tells us about the work of Christ that He's actually going to do in our lives. He's going to involve us in the whole process here. That the God of peace will soon crush that serpent. That the God of peace will soon crush the head of Satan under our feet. He is a defeated foe. He's a defeated foe. Why do we allow Him to have victories in our life even on a small scale? He's a defeated foe. Do you ever think about all the times 
that we allow wickedness to snake its way or worm its way back into our lives when we don't need to? Do you ever think about some of these things? You know, why do we do that? I mean, the power of Christ is at work within all who trust in Him. And yet sometimes we still allow wickedness to creep back in. And how do we do that? Well, think about it. What do we put before our eyes? So what goes before your eyes? What am I putting before my eyes? Because that's one of the ways that wickedness likes to creep its way into our lives. Through, through our eyes, right? It's through these senses. So through our eyes. Or, you know, what do we invite into our minds? Or what do we feed into our ears? Does our diet of influences, we all have a diet of influences, right? We have a steady diet of things that we eat physically, but we also have a diet of influences. So does our diet of influences, does it feed Christ-centered wisdom and goodness, or does that diet feed worldly wickedness and give wickedness an opportunity to worm its way right back in, even though Christ shares His victory with us, and even though Satan, Scripture tells us, is a defeated foe. So you have Paul encouraging the church, listen, don't allow divisive people to gain a foothold there, but then he also segues into saying, listen, don't allow wickedness to have a foothold in your life, right? Be wise as to what is good and innocent as to what is evil, because the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. Something else he brings up here, as he's kind of winding down this scripture. Now, this is these are this is my uh, kind of phrase for what I see going on here, but I think you'll agree with this as a statement. When I look at some of these names that are referenced here in this closing section, so earlier. In this chapter, we saw a bunch of names. Now we see a few more names as well. And one of the things that I think of when I see these names that are referenced here at the end of this book is these are people who were seeking to be obedient to the Lord where the Lord had called him or called them. And I think the Lord's calling us to be his agent wherever he places us. So be God's agent wherever he places you. Look at what it says in verse 21. It says, Timothy, my fellow worker, greets you. So do Lucius and Jason and Sosipater, my kinsmen. Then verse 22 says, I, Tertius, who wrote this letter, greet you in the Lord. And then when you get to verse 23, it says, Gaius, who is host to me and to the whole church, greets you. Erastus, the city treasurer, and our brother Quartus, greet you. Now let me pause there for just a, mo- uh, just a moment and say this. I am very grateful for the diversity of backgrounds, the diversity of gifts, and the diversity of abilities that exist within the church. We all have something unique we bring to the table. And the Lord sends us as His representatives, as His agents, as His ambassadors into every corner of the culture, and He does it on purpose. So whatever corner of the culture the Lord is presently sending you into, use your gifts to glorify Christ. Use your gifts to serve the people of God. Use your gifts to represent Christ in the midst of our culture. So again, like he did earlier in the chapter, you have Paul mentioning a few additional names in this passage. He speaks of Timothy. Timothy comes up multiple times in Scripture. But Timothy was a young man that Paul was mentoring to serve in pastoral ministry. So he mentions him here. He also speaks of others like Lucius and Jason 
And Sosipater, whom he refers to as kinsmen, or you could say as his brothers in Christ. Right? These are brothers in Christ. He mentions Gaius, who was generous in showing hospitality both to Paul and to the church. So that was Gaius' reputation. He mentions Quartus, who sends his greetings. And he also speaks of a man named Erastus. And what does he say, Erastus, what his role was? Erastus was the city treasurer. Now, presumably, he's referencing the city of Corinth, because that's where Paul was writing this letter from. So, but he references Erastus. He's saying the city treasurer of Corinth, Erastus, is a brother in Christ. And there he is serving the Lord in the public sphere. And then even Tertius, who was the person that Paul used to write this letter down as Paul would dictate it, and Tertius would, would pen it down as Paul was saying these words. So Paul would say it out loud, Tertius would write it down. Um, but Tertius even sends his greetings here. And so you see a group of people seeking to be God's agents wherever he had placed them. And this small sampling of people, they were quite diverse in their roles, quite diverse in their abilities. But again, the one thing they had in common was their willingness, or at least one thing they had in common, was their willingness to be God's agent wherever he had placed them. Is that our ambition as well? Think about the different areas that we're placed in. You live in a, in a, in a neighborhood you are God's agent to your family and your extended family. Some of you work for school districts. Some of you work for local governments. Some of you work for local businesses. Some of you are self-employed. Some of you work in all sorts. You know, we have all sorts of spheres represented. And what, is, what does God allow us to do? He allows us to gather together and to scatter and represent Him as His agents. And then gather together and be encouraged by fellowship and, and prayer and and time you know, spent serving one another, and then scatter again as His agents. We're called to be God's agent wherever He places us. And He sends us out into various fields in which we can glorify Him. And then Paul ends this letter with another piece of counsel, and this is where we'll finish this morning. But he encourages us to walk in the strength of Christ. Now, we go verse by verse through these Scriptures. I want you to notice we're picking up in this next section here as we finish up at verse 25, but the previous section ended at verse 23. Did anyone notice? Where's verse 24? Is that missing in your Bible? That's how we got these printed Bibles so cheap. It's a, we got the, the, the discounted uh, uh, edition, right? Is that the issue? No, the... The, the verse numbers were put in later, and, and the earliest, most reliable manuscripts, uh, they don't have verse 24 in there. Verse 24 in the manuscripts that do have them is, they believe, scribes accidentally wrote out a previous verse. It's, just, it's verse 20 just repeated. And so the earliest manuscripts don't have verse 24 in it. That's why, if anyone was really observant, why maybe some of you know, it's like, wait a second, my Bible's missing verse 24. Why does the church not splurge for the more expensive edition, right? But here in verse 25 down to verse 27, so the closing verses of the Scripture, we're encouraged to walk in the strength of Christ. Look at what it says here. It's a beautiful way to end this portion of God's Word. But it says, Now to Him who is able to strengthen you according to My Gospel and the preaching of Jesus Christ, according to the revelation of the mystery that was kept secret for long ages, but has now been disclosed and through the prophetic writings has been made known to all nations according to the command of the eternal God to bring about the obedience of faith 
To the only wise God be glory forevermore through Jesus Christ. Amen. So you have Paul as he's finishing up this letter. He shares several final admonitions to the church. He wanted them to remember that the Lord was able to strengthen them in the knowledge of, in the application of, and in their appreciation for the gospel of Jesus Christ. And you have Paul spending a large percentage of this letter explaining the theological particulars of the gospel. And some of these details and how they'd apply to humanity were once undisclosed by God, but now he says this truth was being known to all nations so that we could come to faith in Christ, so that we could joyfully obey Christ, so that we could bring glory to His name. But I want you to think about these things for just one final moment as we prepare to conclude. Here we're encouraged to be people who walk in the strength of Christ. Take a self-assessment right now. Do you feel strong in the strength of Christ? Do you feel personally strong in the strength that Christ supplies? Life is different when we learn to appreciate the strength of Christ. Life is different when we, when we learn to, to utilize the strength of Christ. When we walk in the strength of Christ, we experience His power over our weaknesses, over our circumstances, over the limited scope of our personal knowledge. Christ is stronger than our anxieties. So if you wrestle with anxiety, I'm telling you, Christ is stronger than your anxiety. If you're struggling with pain, Christ is stronger than your pain. But He could also use your pain to teach you to trust in Him more. He's stronger than any natural opposition you will ever face. He's stronger than any supernatural opposition that may ever come against you. And He invites us to walk in the strength that He graciously supplies. Because what is Christ doing? Christ is building His church. He's building us collectively, and He's building us individually as members of His body. And for thousands of years, there have been attempts to try and tear down what Christ is building. But no attempt is going to find ultimate success. Christ's kingdom will continue to grow. His kingdom will continue to be established as His gospel goes forth, as His gospel finds root in the hearts of those who walk by faith in Him. Let's pray. Lord, thank You so much for Your Word. And thank You for the privilege that it is to be able to look at a portion of Scripture like this today and to meditate on these truths and to think about the things that You want us to understand as we look at them. Lord, we know that so often it can be very easy for us to make the mistake of just trying to walk in our own wisdom or walk in our own strength. And then we look at a portion of Scripture like this that reminds us of Your grace and it reminds us of the strength that You supply. So we're grateful that You have blessed us with these things. We're grateful for Your presence with us. We're grateful that Satan and wickedness are defeated because You, Lord Jesus, rose from the grave. You defeated sin. You defeated Satan. You defeated death. You tell us in this portion of Your Word that Satan's head will be crushed. That he will be crushed under our feet. That You will fulfill the promise made back in Genesis. 
that it will find ultimate fulfillment. We're grateful for this. And so we pray that, Lord, that you would help us not to be people who invite wickedness into our lives. You've given us freedom from it. You've set us free from its control. It doesn't need to have dominion over us any longer. So we pray, Lord, that that our lives would demonstrate the fact that we walk with You, that we know You. We pray that just like the Apostle Paul was able to say about the Romans, that our obedience to You would be known to all. That as the fruit of our genuine faith in Your Son, Jesus Christ, that obedience would be something that our lives are characterized by. That we would walk in such a way that we would show that what You say is of consequence to us. That it matters to us. That we're not caught up in this world's mindset and this world's priorities and this world's values that change all the time but always seem to be leading humanity in a direction further from You. But we're grateful, Lord, that You have intervened on our behalf. And as all sorts of attempts are always being made to tear down the work that You're building up, we pray that we wouldn't give in to them. We pray that we would spend time on offense, strengthened by Your power, listening to You, listening to Your counsel, being obedient to Your Word, that we would spend time on defense, watching out for those who seek to tear down the work that You're building up, watching out for wickedness that tries to worm its way into our lives, and that we would simply walk in the strength that You supply as Your representatives, as Your agents in every field that You send us into. We're grateful for this privilege, we're grateful for Your love, and we're grateful for Your presence with us here today. And we pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.